The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical, Gimby Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is Paul McEwen, who spent a lifetime pursuing an aviation dream as a pilot and instructor. He began his life in the air at the age of 16 flying gliders before moving on to general aviation and finally realised the dream of becoming a commercial airline captain. And it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Paul McEwen, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks very much, Mark. It's lovely to be here. Okay, you're into flying. You've been an airline pilot most of your life. How did it all start? Why did you get into aviation? Well, I often ask myself the same question, you know, but uh, I I was um, uh, just afflicted with a lifelong fascination of aircraft and of of flight. In fact, one of my earliest memories is is asking, as a very small child, is asking my mother, why does an aeroplane fly? How can an aeroplane fly? And I remember she answered, uh, she said, well, they've got big engines that, you know, pull them up into the sky. And that was kind of no, not a bad answer for me, but I, I wanted to know more. And uh, I think, um, yeah, from as early as I can remember, I've just been fascinated by the whole concept of you know, manned flight and aeroplanes and people going into the sky. So uh, as soon as I was able, I suppose, I, um, you know, I I turned uh, that dream into a reality for myself. How did that happen? Um, Well, uh, I I originally, I think I um, had my focus on the Air Force. I I fancied myself as a, you know, devil-may-care fighter pilot and I I thought that'll be the life for me. I'll I'll fly some... (laughs) You know, Mirage or F-18 fighter around the sky. At, you know, Mac 2, and and uh, you know, with my hair on fire. But um, <laughs> it didn't kind of work out that way. So that that was almost my my dream. Well, you're more of a Top Gun or a goose, if you. Were <laughs> <laughs> I think some would say that I'm more of a goose. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was my 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 prime focus. I really wanted to to join the Air Force, but. Uh, Unfortunately, the you know my, my maturity curve didn't really match my uh, my ambition curve at that stage. And, <laughs> and during school, I think I was I was more interested in reading a flying magazine up at the back of the class than paying attention to my studies. So I didn't do terribly well at school. I failed maths and physics at the first pass, and that was uh, at that stage at least a um, you know a very serious prerequisite for the Air Force. So especially for flying. Yeah, that's right. So I I, I missed the boat um, with the Air Force. Uh, later on, I went back and did maths and physics at night school, and you know, it took me a lot of years. I'd, I got the prerequisites, but by that stage, you know, life had moved on, and the Air Force never really worked for me. But um, I was lucky enough to um, uh, start flying, at least in in a small way, while I was still at school. So in year eleven, I was at boarding school. My father used to pick me up on the weekends and and take me out gliding to Boona, and I'd do gliding out there. And, some point during my, uh, you know, um, second last year at school, I managed to go solo in a glider, and that was a pretty amazing experience. Took us through it. Well, uh, gliding's a, a funny sort of thing because you don't really get um, much structure in your training, at least you didn't in those days. So you you turn up at the gliding club in the morning, and you might spend the whole day sort of dragging gliders around, and you might get a flight here and there. You never had the same instructor twice. Never, I can't remember ever doing any theory. 
But uh, I love the fact that when it did happen, I'd get in an aeroplane, uh, we'd be towed up behind uh, a, a, a another aircraft, which is a, quite a noisy and you know dramatic experience in itself. But then there's that moment where you pull a cord on the side of the, the cockpit and the tow rope gets released and suddenly you're in silent flight. And uh, it's just you and the elements and uh, you, know, you, you rely on your own skill and wits to stay in the air basically using the thermal activity or maybe some ridge lift on the side of a mountain. Uh, and the better you are at it, the longer you stay up. Um, but of course, when you're starting, you don't stay up very long at all. And if you've got to do any maneuvers, you, you tend to create a lot of drag and come down sooner anyway. So it was sort of short flights and quite you know, chaotic really. Um, and one day uh, I was out there and uh, I'd done a couple of flights. I, I, I had done one particular flight with an instructor I'd never flown before in a glider I'd never flown before, before called a Blanick. And uh, it was, it was um, I guess, about um, you know, a couple of hours before the end of the day. And I remember um, hearing a noise behind me because in the glider you're, you're sitting fore and aft, you know, tandem configuration, the student or pilot sits in the front, the instructor sits in the back. And uh, I could hear the clicking and clacking of his harness behind me, but it, it was a bit strange because he was actually standing beside me. I'm like, what's going on here? And then I had a pat on the shoulder and said, right, I, I heard this, good luck, good luck, mate, and, uh, you know, off you go. And he closed the canopy, and then suddenly I'm in the aeroplane by myself. And, uh, and you've had the experience too, so you know what it's like, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bewildering but magical thing, all happening at the same time, sensory overload, really. But... Uh, fortunately, they didn't give me enough time to think about it. So, you know, before I knew it, the, the tow rope was hooked on, the, the Piper Pawnee tow plane had fired up its engine and I was off, you know. And uh, in a glider, the glider, uh, when you're taking off, uh, because it's got big wings and generates a lot of lift, it lifts off a lot earlier than the, the tow plane. And of course, without the instructor in the back, I was off even earlier. So it was quite startling that I, you know, managed to hold it down and hold position behind the tug. and. And then off we went and uh, we climbed up to 2,000 feet and uh, went through the procedure and I you know, pulled the cord and off I went into my beautiful silent flight. And uh, I was on my own. And uh, I, you know, it's hard to explain the feeling and, and uh, it's something that, that most pilots will always remember. It's a very special sort of magical feeling, mixture of elation and terror all at the same time. I, the difference with a, with a glider first solo, of course, is um, you know most aircraft, you, you know, the instructor will get out and get you to do one circuit and land. That's the way it is for powered aircraft. But a glider, well, I didn't get any instructions and uh, didn't tell me when to come back. There was a bit of thermal activity around, so I just flew on. So um, I flew round and round and got higher and higher, and I think I launched at 2,000 feet. I got up to about four and a half or 5,000 feet. and. From up there, I could see everything around Boona. I could almost see to Brisbane, and um, I could see the, the sun setting in the distance. And uh, it was, an, you know, I was elated. Um, and I think I was up for oh, well over an hour. I think it was almost an hour and twenty minutes, which is a long first solo. And I was enjoying myself so much, I almost forgot that the sun was about to set, and I probably ought to come home. So uh, I finally sort of came to my senses. And realised, oh heck, I better get back. So I pulled the air brake out and descended and came back and and did a reasonable landing and that's it, you know. But that's the magical experience that every pilot sort of has in a different way sometimes. But uh, the first solo is the first time you you know you take responsibility for the aeroplane yourself and uh, it's um it's a pretty awesome responsibility because you've got to manage to get yourself back on the ground in one piece. But you don't get a chance when there's no power. You don't get a chance to go around. You've got one chance. Well, that's right. That's the other unique thing about a, a glider is every landing is a is a force landing. So, uh, 
uh, you certainly, you know, you learn, if nothing else, how to judge your approach correctly and uh, how to set yourself up on final so that you, you're going to land properly every time. You don't have an alternative. It was, um, it was training that actually, you know, has held me in good stead over the years because when I got into powered aircraft, especially in the early days when I was flying ultralights, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I had quite a number of engine failures, so situations where the engine failed and I had to land the aeroplane uh, without power. Really? And of course, I was able to always fall back on my glider experience to, uh, to achieve that. So it's, you know, sounds quite dramatic, but for, for me, uh, engine failures have never posed too much of a problem, and I, I always thank my glider training for that. Well, I know a friend of mine that um, he had an engine failure. He was flying from Darwin back to uh, south of Sydney, and he was coming towards Charleville and he got an, had a complete engine failure at about six or 7,000 feet. And he didn't have glider training and there was a lot of pressure on him to actually put it on the ground. But he managed to and, you know, as, as I've spoken to glider pilots saying, they get that every time. Yeah, that's right. Of course, even powered aircraft uh, receive that training as well. Um, but uh, yeah, having to do it in real life with the engine really stopped certainly concentrates <laughs> the mind, that's for sure. Well, training is an integral part of flying. Yeah, well, uh, that's right. And, uh, you know, to that end, uh, you know, the better a pilot is trained, the, the safer they will be generally. Um, I mean, there's other factors as well. We talk about airmanship, so decision making and, and uh, your approach, your professionalism to flying is, is very important as well. But, um, but you know, and, that, and that, that can be trained for as well, but there's a little bit of personal discipline and personal attitude that's involved there. But, but yeah, training for those uh, uh, things like emergencies, force landing, stalling, spinning, um, you know, unusual events, uh, really important for a pilot to develop those skills uh, so they can go out and, you know, uh, pursue their craft safely. Let's get back to that first solo that you had in the glider. What happened? You pulled the canopy off and then you got out. How did you feel? Well, I think I was 16 years old then, so I think I was a bit too cool for school, you know, so I was just going, you know, whatever. <laughs> but deep down, of course, you know, I'd been dreaming about that moment for years and years and years, ever since I was a small boy, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I um, had so many, I longed for it for so long, you know, I used to ride my pushy out to the airfield long before I got anywhere near an aeroplane, just to, just to sit at the fence watching aeroplanes fly around, and I always imagined myself in the aeroplane as the pilot. And imagine myself doing that and uh, even imagine my first solo over and over uh, so yeah look it was a very very special moment as it is for every pilot but the elation must have been immense how how proud was your father because he was taking you out there yeah that's right I, I look um, yeah he was I'm, I'm sure he was was very proud of me later on he, he actually got his uh, ultralight license as well so we shared a few adventures down the track uh, flying but uh, yeah, Dad was always a bit of an adventurer himself. He was a sailor, uh, more than a flyer originally, and a scuba diver and things. So he had that sort of adventurous streak. So um, yeah, I think we, we were able to share that moment together, which was very nice. Yeah. You said that um, you failed in your uh, bid to join the Air Force. What occupied you while you were waiting to become a pilot? How did you uh, make ends meet? Yeah, so I... Um, uh, you know, de devastated not being able to uh, get into the Air Force, I was still determined to fly. So after I left school, uh, I, I tried to, you know, Im improve my flying qualifications and keep going, keep pursuing my flying as, as best I could. I didn't have a great deal of money at that stage. So uh, gliding was, 
was great training, but also very cheap, you know, because mm. at that stage it was a club activity, so I don't pay for the instruction. So I, was, I managed to get my gliding qualification uh, without too much expense. And uh, then I was fortunate to stumble upon ultralights. And I just sort of hit an era where ultralights were just making um, some real progress in Australia. They developed two-seat ultralight aeroplanes and they'd, they, they were moving from being, a, you know, a, a really scary sort of backyard kind of build-your-own thing. Because the, they had a terrible reputation early on. Yeah, they, they did. And, uh, you know, there's a, a few reasons for that. But back to training, in, in those days they only had uh, single-seat ultralights oftentimes that people were making in their backyard. And there was no proper training, and so people taught themselves to fly, and you know that sometimes worked, and but more often than not, that it didn't. So ultralights had a pretty bad reputation. But in in 1984, uh, the Australian government sort of um, regulated uh, ultralights to a point. They brought in uh, two-seat trainers, and an organisation called the Australian Ultralight Federation started. And they became a self-administering body that looked after the training and licensing of, uh, of ultralight flying. They're still in existence now. They're the Recreational Aviation Australia, uh, and but at that point uh, they just brought in two-seat aircraft. Um, they were starting to become mainstream, and so I got some training in an ultralight and was able to move my glider qualifications to ultralight flying. I was able to do that fairly cheaply. Mm. I then went and did. I uh, started some powered flying at, at Archfield in general aviation aircraft. I, I went up to my private pilot license, and then I ran completely out of money. <laughs> at that stage I was working two night jobs in Brisbane and then flying in the day. Welcome to aviation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the glamour of aviation. So uh, one of my, my choice jobs at that period of time was I used to go at night with a little buddy of mine and we used to, uh, we used to clean uh, 14 floors of the MLC building but uh, our job was cleaning the toilets and the bathrooms and so we, uh, he was another flying buddy of mine but that's what, that's what we did. So. Um, yeah, 14 floors every night of the MLC building. The toilets was really something to behold <laughs> after a busy day at the office. You know, they were horrendous. But every 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 bowl and uh, and every urinal and every basin was uh, was a, a few more dollars in my pocket to go flying. Um, so uh, yeah, that that sort of kept kept me going. But uh, I got to the point where I really didn't know how I was going to you know go through and get my commercial or go any further with it. But uh, at about that point, I um, I saw. Um, an ad in the paper for an ultralight instructor course, which was happening down at uh, Coomera, opposite Dreamworld there. And at that stage, it was a very, very simple course, much different than it is now. Mm. Uh, I think it was a 10 hour course. It was uh, bargained to take a week and it cost $1,000. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I went cap in hand to me old mum and I, I, I borrowed $1,000 and went and did this course and became an ultralight instructor. Still had really no idea what I was doing myself, but now I was in a position where I could, I could teach people to do it. And uh, it was a bit, fright, bit of a frightening prospect, really. But um, anyway, I was lucky enough to, to pick up a job at the same place, just a very casual job. And I remember my first day was in Drifters, and we had this tiny little strip at, at, um, at Coomera, just over the, from the Gold Coast. Talk us through what a drifter is. Well, a drifter is, a, is, a, is a, an open cockpit uh, we call it a rag and tube aeroplane, so it's it's got a you know metal frame. Uh, the wings are covered in dacron like sailcloth, and it's got two fiberglass seats, one fore and aft, a bit like the glider, but it's completely open to the elements. The engine's on the back. It's got a little two-stroke uh, Rotax engine on the back. Uh, originally 50 horsepower, then they went to 65 horsepower, and you've got a, the front seat pilot has got a little pod around him, but not much else, and a stick and a rudder pedals and a and a and a throttle. 
But the wonderful thing about a drifter is the um, when you're sitting in the front of the drifter, uh, the, the wing and the rest of the aeroplane is all behind you. So when you go flying, it's like you're out there on your own, out the front <laughs> and uh, flying like a bird. It's probably the closest you can get to being a, being a, being a bird and still have an engine and you know, something resembling an aeroplane following along behind you. Um, so, uh, yeah, we had drifters there and the school was run by a, a, uh, a, a lovely old ex-airline captain called Barry Sigley. And he gave me a bit of a start there. And I remember my first uh, day at work, I did a trial instructional flight, which was like a, you know, 15 minute flight with a, with a student. And I was on the, on the, uh, the handsome um, uh, wage of $15 an hour as a junior <laughs> old flight instructor on drifters. <laughs> So I did my little flight. I think I might have gone a bit over the point three of an hour or whatever it was, but um, that was all I did for the day. But at the end of the day, uh, Captain Sigley paid me for my, my efforts and he paid me cash. He's a cash man, old, uh, old Barry. <laughs> but he put the, put the pay in my hand and it was, uh, it was cash. It was you know, $4.50 or something like that. But I just stood there and looked it in the palm of my hand. And I thought, my God, someone has just paid me to go and fly an aeroplane. And I thought that was the most amazing thing in the world. So. Uh, I stayed there for a little while and uh, still working at night in Brisbane. Then I was fortunate enough to pick up a, a job over at Boona where they were building the Drifter. And uh, they were at that stage selling a lot of aircraft out west to farmers and uh, they were getting really busy. So I started working at both flying schools during the day, you know, on the days of the week and working at Brisbane at night. And gradually the Boona job got so busy, I, I left the Coomera job. I was able to give up one and then the other night jobs and that became my full-time profession. And so I was an ultralight instructor there for about five years and uh, the money I, I earned there put me through my commercial and my instrument rating and my general aviation instructor rating. And, and uh, so I've really got ultralights to, to thank for you know uh, my career in aviation. I was able to get, get there in the end. But so I've always... They hold a special type, uh, a special place for you. Yeah, they they absolutely do for for those reasons, of course, uh, but also because they're just so much fun, you know. And I've always been attracted to the the pureness of flight, you know, just to get in the air and 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 be in the element, not so much going to a, from A to B, but just being in in the air and being in charge of a craft that you can move through the sky in three dimensions. And of course, something like a drifter gives you that experience like nothing else in the world. Yeah. So I've always, they've always had a place in my heart and I've still got a drifter in my hangar, uh, even after all these years. So, okay, you've uh, started to study, you're getting your commercial uh, licence. Talk us through what happened then. Uh, well, look, um, when I was working at Boona, I had a lot of amazing experiences. I flew these little drifters all over the country. I flew them you know, across the Nullarbor to Perth, delivering them to customers. I went across took one down to Tasmania across Bass Strait, all through Western Queensland, New South Wales. A drifter across the strait. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was a bit confronting actually. Uh, probably stupid really when I think back at it. It had been done before, before me, but um, only, only a couple of times. Um, but I went down, um, yeah, I went down over, over, over um, King Island, which was a long way over water. Um, these days they tend to go over Flinders Island, but uh, I went over King Island and yeah, it was a long way, especially in a little two-stroke aeroplane over the water. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so lots Did of Did they have the regular um, call signs and call in and check in at that stage? Uh, no, look, most of the flying I did in those days was just totally unsupported. You know, we rarely had radios in the aeroplane, actually, especially when we were delivering them. I did in that, that case at a VHF, but um, yeah, we were outside of radio range for quite a bit of that flight. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, often we'd we'd deliver an aeroplane. They weren't standardised with radios, so the, the the farmers in the bush just ordered an aeroplane. Sometimes they had a UHF, so you could talk to the truckies, but that was that was often it. Rudimentary instruments. Um, most of my initial ferry flying was done completely without GPS, as well, which was interesting. Must but, have been good um, training. Yeah, well, it was it was an adventure and fantastic and scary moments sometimes, but it, but it was but it was great. So I kind of did that. Um, as I as I um, moved into general aviation as well, I kept doing a bit of that ferry flying. But I en- ended up working at um, as a general aviation flying instructor at Archerfield. That was my next move for um, for Barry Hempel, who's you know quite uh, a, oh, a renowned a <laughs> aviator and a bit of a rogue. Yeah, yeah. who's uh, sadly no longer with us. But I was with Barry for quite a few years there, and that was another uh, complete education for me. Because he was quite a well-renowned stunt pilot. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think Barry took a bit of a shine to me because I was into the, the you know, the, the ultralights and tailwheel aircraft and aerobatics and that sort of thing. So um, I, he put me on as a casual instructor and then eventually, you know, full time. And I, I was with him for, for a few years there. Um, and, you know, we had, we did everything there. We did absolutely everything. I flew all sorts of aeroplanes, you know, crazy stuff would come in and, and, and I'd get to fly it. So I flew lots of tailwheel aeroplanes, lots of aerobatic aeroplanes and vintage aircraft, including about 300 hours in the beautiful Tiger Moth, which is, oh, wow. yeah, like a, um, you know, uh, very famous uh, old uh, Second World War biplane trainer, but uh, more or less like a drifter to fly because you're out in the open and it's a stick and rudder machine, so. You know, it was a fascinating time there. I learned a lot um, and, uh, you know, the place was a complete madhouse. And I saw so many, I mean, both with ultralights and that, that sort of early period in GA, I was fortunate enough to see so many characters in aviation, which, you know, I think are tending to be bred out of it a little bit now. <laughs> it's all become a bit sterile, maybe maybe for the better. But, uh, yeah, Bar- people like uh, Barry uh, Hempel were just incredible characters, more more at home in the air than they were on the ground. And, uh, you know, Barry was a, he was certainly a flawed character, that's for sure, but an amazing pilot, probably the best I've ever seen and, and maybe um, the best I'll ever see. He could fly anything mm. and he could do it intuitively and uh, without even thinking. So he'd, he'd get out of, a, you know, the tiniest little home-built aeroplane or ultralight and he'd, he'd next, his next aeroplane would be the MiG-15 or, you know, a King Air <laughs> or a Citation Jet or something, absolutely incredible. So, uh, and, and Barry's um, concept to, you know, checking me out on aeroplanes was he had a big handlebar moustache and it was usually, you know, Barry, how, what have I got to fly today? And he'd point me towards some horrendous aeroplane I'd never flown before. And he'd just say, just get in there, McKeown, just get in and fly. It's just another aeroplane. <laughs> Twiddling in his moustache at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah, I sort of learnt pretty quick on the job then. Well, it was quite ironic. Then he was actually killed in a... Uh in, in a, an aeroplane accident. Yeah, I mean, look, the circumstances of his his death were, were horrendous and, and very tragic, um, and and we can uh, we we can take nothing away from that. But but to say that the the likes of, of that guy, uh, it would be very hard to imagine them living to old age. You know, and that might sound a bit strange, but uh, you know, some of those characters. Um, you know, were were only in their element when they were when they were in the air, and you couldn't ever you could never imagine them sitting on a couch with a with a uh, blanket across their knees as old people. But yeah, it takes nothing away from the fact it was a very tragic accident. You talk about how he was the best that you'd flown with or seen. What was it like to actually sit in the uh, the, the the second seat when when he was at the controls? 
look, it, it, it was breathtaking. Barry was a great pilot, but a terrible instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's that, that's often you know can be the case with really good pilots. Uh, they expect everyone to be exactly the same as them. But um, but I really I always enjoyed flying with with Barry, and uh, you know I can remember actually not long before his death flying with him in the Yak 52 and we, we, we took off from um, from uh, uh, Watts Bridge over in the, the uh, Brisbane Valley there and we had to ferry the thing home and on the way back he said McKeon have you ever seen an inverted spin now if anyone knows anything about aviation I mean spinning's pretty dramatic as it is it's a good thing to learn and to train for uh, but it's a pretty dramatic activity and inverted spinning's even even more dramatic so what you've basically got to do is take an aeroplane and, and roll it upside down so that you're in inverted flight, so you're hanging in your straps. And then you perform a stall upside down. So you push the stick forward, which pushes the nose up while you're upside down until the wing stalls. And then you end up, if you do it right, you boot the rudder in and you end up in this horrendous gyrating upside down, wild screaming sort of, you know, death descent. <laughs> And I can remember uh, being in this thing and trying to hold onto the controls and trying to hold it in this inverted spin and Hempel very calmly in the back just twiddling his moustache and going, now you're coming down pretty fast, McEwen, aren't you? And our rate of descent was out of, out of this world, you know. But anyway, we recovered from that and as we recovered, we were below the, the, the tree line and all my heart was pounding. And I, Anyway, we flew home and then I said, well, would you like to have a fly, Barry? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'll have a little turn. And he grabbed the controls and, look, we were down sort of in a valley just um, north of Mount Me there. And he did this little display in, in, in the valley, you know, in amongst the hills as the sun was going down that I've just, I was, it was a privilege to watch it. We were vertical and then we're down pointing at the ground, then we're upside down and twisting around. I was an aerobatic pilot, but even and the stuff he was doing was just blowing me away. But the naturalness of it was incredible. You know, the fact that the aeroplane was moving like it was an extension of his arms and legs. and. You know, that um, sounds a bit corny, but that's exactly what it was. And that's what it was like to fly with, with Barry, yeah. Why get into aerobatics? Um, I, I think aerobatics are, are a natural progression for anyone that's really interested in flying and exploring uh, their aeroplane because, you know, you don't want to fly around having any sort of gray areas in your knowledge of the aeroplane or its envelope. and. Um, I always, you know, I don't want to fly around thinking, oh, I wonder what would happen if I was upside down or I wonder what would happen if I was in a spin or something like that. I would prefer to see it, you know, and do it and make sure I'm comfortable with it. Uh, so there's that element, but it's also great fun, you know. It's really good fun to be able to twist and turn and, you know, climb up vertically and dive around the cloud and, you know, roll and loop and all that sort of stuff. So it's terrific fun. In fact, you know, my uh, wonderful business partner, Marty Power, and I go flying and do aerobatics together. We, even now, having flown, you know, most of our, our working lives, we giggle and squeal and carry on like schoolgirls, you know, when we're doing aerobatics. So it's just good fun. What haven't you done that you want to do, though, in the aviation field? You're, we'll get on to the, uh, the commercial aviation in a bit, but is there something that you still want to do? Uh, that's a really good question I haven't really asked myself before I, I guess um, at the moment I'm uh, we're, we're developing the, the, the business so I've got um, a little flying school well let's talk about the flying school uh, it's um, recreational flying company tell us all about that how that got off the ground so um, when I joined my first airline, which uh, was in about uh, 2004, uh, it was Virgin Blue in those days, uh, 
I uh, got rostered one day to fly with a, uh, a captain who's uh, only a couple of years older than me uh, by the name of Marty Power. And when you go into uh, to do a flight in the airline, the first thing you do is walk into the crew room. And if you imagine there's just a you know a series of computer consoles there and a fax machine and a clerk, and you go and do your flight planning, you sign in, and you you meet. That's where you you meet. Your, your team so if you're an FO you'll meet your captain and if you're the captain you'll meet your FO and you you know you discuss the flight plan together talk about the fuel load and then you move from there out to the to the coffee shop and then the airplane anyway so I was in there one day signing on and and uh, uh, this guy not much older than me pulled up beside me with uh, curly black hair and uh, and no hat never wore a hat in the airline and still doesn't <laughs> but uh, he pulled up beside me and you know, the, the usual small talk ensued, you know, uh, how was your morning, that sort of thing. And he, uh, when I asked Marty how was his morning, he said, oh, yeah, pretty good, I've been flying. And I thought, oh, that's a bit interesting, because not every airline pilot uh, enjoys flying outside of the airlines. There are some enthusiasts in there, but not, not all. So, of course, being an enthusiast myself, I immediately pricked up my attention, and I said, oh, what, what in? And he said, oh, Tiger Moth. And I went, oh, of course, you know. So suddenly we had a rapport straight away, and... Uh, and uh, he said, what have you been doing? And I said, oh, I've been flying in my drifter. So uh, once we sort of worked out that we were, we were both keen on flying outside of aviation, we hit it off straight away. And uh, we had a trip together and um, uh, just talked nonstop about, you know, nerdy aviation history and uh, aircraft and all, so all the sort of, sorts of things we'd like to fly. And I think we, uh, we parted company at the end of the trip, which was four days, and we might have done another trip together. And, and uh, I saw Marty down the track some at some point, and he was um, he was saying he was selling his Tiger Moth. So I said, "Well, why don't we get an aeroplane together?" And so we uh, we decided to go in together in an aircraft, and we bought a Piper Cub, a little yellow uh, J3 1945 Piper Cub, which we we later ferried up from Melbourne. Uh, and when we got the car, we thought, well, we've really got to do something with it to justify its existence. So we thought, well, why don't we um, do a little bit of training? You know, two, two men and a pipe of car, we'll just do some really low-key, small-scale tailwheel, you know, uh, stick and rudder sort of training on the side. Well, that was fine. That lasted, uh, you know, uh, not a very long time at all. Um, uh, we started doing a little bit of that. We got a little caravan and, uh, you know, used that as our briefing office. Um, then a hangar came up on the field at Gympie and it was a big hangar and uh, so we, we jumped on that and we got it but it was a bit big just for the tiger, just for the Piper Cub so we ended up having to get another couple of aeroplanes and then to justify that we had to sort of put ourselves out for more work and employ some instructors and anyway before we knew it this little concept had turned into a complete and utter monster and uh, that's the recreational flying company that we, we still operate uh, today you know some nearly 14 years later. Where have you sent pilots to? Well, we've um, we've taught people from all walks of life to fly. We do just about everything. So we we still do training in things like the drifter and recreational training in an aircraft called the Foxbat. Uh, but we go all the way through to commercial and instrument rating and and uh, multi-engine flying and all that sort of thing. So a vast uh, array of, of of students from all sorts of places. So I've got uh, you know kids as young as 15 learning to fly because you can get a license, an ultralight license at 15 or recreational license we call it these days. We've even taught an 80 year old guy to fly and everything in between. But um, our commercial pilot graduates uh, are kind of all over the place. We've got uh, you know guys flying in the Air Force now and uh, wow. guys flying up in Darwin doing you know charter activity over there. Some people have gone overseas. We had a cohort of uh, Taiwanese students for a while who were an absolute delight for us. So uh, um, 
they've uh, uh, moved on to, to Taiwan and some of them have picked up airline work and cadet ships and things like that. So, But um, a huge uh, uh, proportion of our flying is still with recreational pilots who um, come from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, locals, sometimes they're from further afield, but they, uh, they just want to learn to fly for fun. So they'll learn to fly in the Fox Bat or the Cessna or whatever they want to get into. And, uh, you know, they just enjoy uh, taking their friends and family for flights around the local area or, you know, maybe further afield. Do you enjoy instructing? Yes. Uh, yeah, Mark, I, l I love it. And I always have. And I think, I, I mean, that's, that's what gave me my, my start originally. Uh, but I've always retained an interest in it. And um, I've now been fortunate enough to instruct at every level from ultralights in the, in the drifter all the way through to, you know, 737 and, uh, and transport aircraft. And I get a real um, uh, buzz out of it still. And it has its frustrating moments, obviously. But when you're teaching someone else to fly, obviously you relive all your own training experiences. And it's not always easy. Some people do it easier than others, but it's not always easy and the student has some moments where they you know they nearly give up because it's become too hard or they have a training a, a learning plateau and so as an instructor you, you really need to um, you know not only nurture the skills and develop their uh, their talents as a pilot but you've got to help them work through these little training hurdles and, and difficulties and and go with them on the journey I suppose to becoming a pilot and uh, the that's a thankless task at times I can tell you but the rewards when you get there together as a as a team and you, you've um, you know you've created another pilot or sent someone solo, is is just the most amazing thing and it's a reward that keeps keeps on delivering. In fact, you know when you send someone solo as an instructor, it's the next best thing to your own first solo that we talked about at the start of the program and. You know, I guess it's a bit selfish, but as an instructor, you get to keep doing that over and over again, you know, whereas most pilots only experience it once. So there's that, that, that feeling, that elation. Do you, get, do you get elated when you're actually, when they don't know, when you're actually pulling the belts or you, and it's like, okay, your turn now. How do you sort of equate to stepping out of the plane or sending someone off? Yeah, look, it's a it, it, it's um, it's a really interesting experience as an instructor too, because you have to step away. You know, you have to give the student the responsibility to do that, and that's probably the hardest thing is is detaching yourself from it and letting go. You try and do all the right things. You know, you try to make sure you've given them all the training and all the experiences they need to keep themselves safe on the first solo, but you never quite know. You know, you never quite know. Have I done enough? You know, is this is he going to be okay? And we've got a few little, um, you know, parameters that we we check off to make sure that's going to ha uh, that's going to happen. But you never quite know. So it's completely nerve wracking as an instructor stepping out of the aeroplane. <laughs> Most students hate to hear this, but but it is. You know, so we we step out and uh, we've got to be you know the calm voice of authority and encourage them. And I, we I, we've got to give them the tap on the shoulder and say, right, I made off you go. You know. We tie the seatbelt up ceremoniously, you know, in the instructor's station. We make sure we look around, make sure all the cockpit controls are, are set for takeoff. Um, <laughs> give the student a bit of a bit of a hand with that. Uh, a quick uh, pep talk, but not too long. You know, we don't want to belabor it, so we give them a quick quick pep talk on what we want them to do, and you know, just mention that the aeroplane will get off the ground a bit earlier. Remember that myself. <laughs> It'll climb a bit faster. Uh, it might float a little bit longer on landing, but it's going to fly exactly the same as it's been on the last 10 circuits that you've done with me in the back. So uh, off you go, 
have a great time and uh, see when you get back. You're <laughs> flying really well. <laughs> but then I step away and, uh, and yeah, look, it's, it's a terrifying experience. <laughs> I go and say a little prayer for them, even though I'm not religious. And I go and sit on the side of the runway. We hide on the side of the runway so they can't see us because if they see us when they're on final, they might get a bit nervous. So we hide there and I, I sit there and I, I wish them well. But then it's up to them, you know. So then they get in the aeroplane and they, their training takes over and they take off and they come around and land. But, man, that, that moment they, they touch the ground and often it's not so beautiful landing because, you know, they're, they're concentrating hard and, and, and um, they've got the skills. Sweating bullets. Sweating bullets, yeah. <laughs> but we are too, you know. So, you know, they, they get it down and you just, oh, the sense of euphoria and relief is unbelievable. So then we, we run up to them and uh, congratulate them and share that moment together. And, you know, it is just the most magical experience. And I've had grown men just, you know, bawling their eyes out after they've gone solo because it's just so overwhelming the experience and it's hard not to you know share that experience with them as well because i've been around the uh, recreational flying company when there have been certain uh, milestones for people and there's a real camaraderie for pilots what do you put that down to yeah that's right and, and I, I suppose that's one of the things that attracted me to the profession as well and particularly the pathway that i've taken with with recreational flying where that seems to be very very strong indeed and, and there is a a bit of an esprit de corps there and maybe it's the shared experience uh, everyone remembers their own ach achievement things like going solo or getting a license are, are things that a pilot will appreciate more than you know your mum or dad or uh, or, your, or your mates will you know you'll go go solo and, and go home and say oh, I went solo today and, and uh, someone might say well that's nice dear you know <laughs> but when you're talking to another, another pilot they go oh wow you know what was it like what was it in you know where did you go how was the landing you know that sort of thing so I think that those shared experiences are, um, uh, are what creates that, that, that rapport and that, that uh, camaraderie. And I've, I've seen that um, too uh, in, in uh, companies. So, you know, we had a, I was on the, uh, lucky enough to fly the Embraer jet at Virgin for a while, which was a smaller aircraft than the 737, just as capable, probably better than the 737. But uh, we were sort of the black sheep squadron. We were a smaller community of pilots and we grew the aeroplane from its uh, introduction Pretty well till the till they uh, they got rid of them and uh, the, the the um, the the camaraderie in that group was wonderful. I remember my time in the Kimberley as the chief pilot of a big charter company in the Kimberley. We had 25 young pilots, not much well, not much older than me. Uh, uh, and I was probably one of the youngest ones there, but I was the boss for a while. God knows how. But um, we uh, we had 25 pilots and we used to fly in the Kimberley, which is an amazing sort of remote region, and you know, particularly in the wet season, very, very difficult flying, but we used to, you know, fly hard and we'd, we'd, uh, we'd play pretty hard too. We had a, had a pretty good um, sort of social life. But that, that community of pilots up there have remained lifelong friends for me. So, you know, these groups are, and communities of pilots uh, are pretty wonderful. In fact, um, you know, my, my, my wife often says to me, oh, Paul, you don't have any friends that aren't pilots. And I'm like, well, I haven't found too many you know, people that aren't pilots that I'm interested in at the moment, so. Well, I suppose you're surrounding yourself with pilots anyway, so it's, you know, when you're in the RAF, for, for want of a better example, they associate with other RAFIs. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And uh, it's, it's probably a little bit of a, a, a narrow, uh, you know, take on the world. That's not to say I don't like people that aren't pilots, for sure. I've got many friends that, that don't fly, but yeah, there's a particular thing when you're around other pilots, you can talk about things and talk that language that we, we Especially speak. when you have the passion for it. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Has it died? Is it still there, the passion that you first got, that first solo that uh, you had? Is the passion still there? Sometimes, Mark, I wish it would go away, but it, it, it doesn't. And uh, one of my wonderful old mentors, that, that uh, a wonderful old flying instructor uh, by the name of Terry Monty, who uh, I met when I was at, at Boona and was the first guy to give me the book Fate is a Hunter, which is one of these famous flying books and, and really instilled in me some of the... Uh, you know the 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 lore and, and ethos of, of of stick and rudder flying. He always used to say, "Well, well, flying's worse than a drug, Paul." I thought, "Why is that, uh, Terry?" Because you can give drugs up. <laughs> can you see a time when you won't be flying, or is it something you always think you'll do? Of course, I'd like to fly f forever. You know, and mm. getting back to your question, I couldn't answer before. What what is there left to do? Well, uh, for me. Um, everything's left to do you know there's so many aeroplanes out there that I'd like to fly and so many experiences I'd like to have and so many places I'd like to fly to so um, in fact flying is the ultimate um, enterprise for a person like me with a short attention span because there's always something else to do another rating to achieve or another aircraft to fly so uh, as long as there's aeroplanes and man flight I'll want to keep flying but of course uh, you know we've got to be realistic about it and there is a point where your, your skills start to you know, fall away a little bit, and uh, I, you know, as an instructor, I've, I've I've been witness to that as well. When you've got older pilots that probably are flying beyond the point when they should, and don't recognise it. So I think that you know, to be realistic, there will be a time when I I won't fly anymore, mm. uh, and hopefully I'll still have uh, the airmanship to be able to recognise that and make the decision when it when it when it comes. But a uh, long way from that yet. I hope. What makes a good pilot? Yeah, good question. So uh, we talk about uh, you know uh, two two pillars, you know, holding up the the, the ideal pilot. Um, one is the the physical flying skills. You know, you've got to be able to fly the aeroplane, and uh, even d despite the fact that aviation's come so far and modern aircraft are so automated and so amazing, you know, they can do so much by themselves. I know from my personal experience, even flying transport aircraft airlines, uh, there have been moments when I've had to fall back on my, my physical flying skills, you know, that I learnt in the gliders and ultralights and aerobatic aeroplanes and so on. So you've got to be able to fly, uh, at least at the moment, you've got to still be able to fly the aeroplane. So hand-eye, foot coordination, uh, spatial awareness, those sorts of things are really important. Being able to sort of feel what's going on in the aeroplane almost before it happens. So you've got to be able to fly, but the other pillar is uh, your uh, sense of what we call airmanship. And airmanship are things like your decision-making skills and your um, adherence to uh, procedure and, and, and rules and you know, being able to make sound judgments, look after your crew, use the resources around you, uh, you know, in an emergency or a difficult situation uh, to get the best outcome. So what we're looking for in a pilot is these two things, you know. Uh, it's not good enough to just have one or the other. You've got to have both. So when we're going through the training process, that they're the things that we're, we're trying to develop in a, in a new pilot. And has that been just right from the start or in the commercial world? What are you trying to do? Is it just something that goes right across the board? Absolutely, absolutely. And we try to start with those concepts right from the earliest stages of a student's training. 
In fact, you know, a, a, a student gets in a tiny little aeroplane like a drifter or a glider, we tell them, hey, you're the captain of this aeroplane. You're in charge of it. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a matter of just flying it with the stick and rudder. You've got to make decisions about it. You know, you've got to choose when you fly and when you don't fly. Mm -hmm. You've got an engine, you've got to choose to go around if the landing's not looking good. You know, you've got to look after your passenger if you've got one. So we, we develop those sort of, um, um, those attitudes right from the start and that's the best way to do it. What are some of the poor decisions you've made while you're in here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we could be here for a long time. I'm very fortunate that none of them have killed me, you know, and I have, I've lost quite a few uh, acquaintances over the years and I've been lucky, you know, some people, aviation is not, you know, there's an old saying that says aviation is not inherently dangerous, but to a much greater extent than the sea, it is terribly unforgiving of any carelessness, incapacity or neglect. And there's certainly been times when I've been careless, but I've been fortunate enough to get away w with it. But um, yeah, look, there's a <laughs> there's been a few times. I, oh gosh, um, you know, there's one particular case that uh, just springs to mind when I was flying an aeroplane called a Sonarai, which is a little two-seat home-built aeroplane, very fast, like an air racing-styled uh, aeroplane. Uh, and uh, I was flying around Boona in this thing, zooming around, and I thought, oh, I'll just do a bit of an inverted glide. It's not an aerobatic aeroplane, so I shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. But I rolled the aeroplane upside down, pushed the stick forward, which we do to sort of achieve a bit of negative G. And as I did that, I heard a clunk in the back of the aeroplane, and the control suddenly froze. So the ailerons wouldn't work at all, and they're the control that used to roll the aeroplane. So I had no way of rolling it back up the right way, which is really quite a you know, disconcerting experience. <laughs> I thought, oh, this isn't good. And I had my little pal on board too, and uh, you know I really shouldn't have put him in the situation. And we weren't that high; we we're probably about 2,000 feet, and losing height very rapidly. The engine stops; we're upside down as well. So now we've got no control, no engine, and didn't really know what to do. So I just I, I pushed the rudder in, and I kind of you know was able to rudder the aeroplane around using the, the secondary control, and I got it back up the right, right way. And there was another clunk, and the control started working again. And anyway, much chastened, I came back and and landed and had a little think about it and uh, yeah the airplane had a folding wing mechanism and the way the aileron controls were, were designed uh, it wasn't designed for flying upside down and when I put it upside down the, the aileron linkages went over centre and they locked the ailerons out so obviously I could have avoided the whole sorry situation if I didn't put the airplane upside down. Uh, decision making, you know 101. Absolutely and how did you feel though when you, you are losing height and you're thinking oh my goodness what? What now? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, I just thought, well, that was stupid, wasn't it, Paul? <laughs> but fortunately, I was able to sort of, you know, manoeuvre my way out of the situation just by, you know, a bit of, bit of luck and <laughs> good design, I suppose. But uh, yeah, this is back to the decision making. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, but, uh, you know, I've had other, th that's, uh, that's a poor decision. I've had other incidents where, you know, the problem has been neglect. So I, I remember one incident in particular, again down at Boona when I was in a, instructing in a drifter, so I'm in the back seat of the drifter, the students in the front, and it had been a big day, you know, I'd done about four or five hours of training and it was uh, the last flight of the day and the student was doing some force landings, he was a pretty good student, and when we uh, simulate a force landing what we do is the instructor pulls the throttle back to idle and we say simulated engine failure and the student goes through his procedure, puts the nose down, adopts the glide attitude and, uh, and, and starts to manoeuvre towards a simulated landing in a paddock. But before we get there, we usually put the power on and, and go around and we might do another one or we might go home. Anyway, I must have gone to sleep a bit and the student was, was just turning base, so turning at 90 degrees to the paddock, about to start his final approach on the simulated paddock. And 
we sort of got behind a hill a bit and must have been a, 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 um, some unusual atmospheric effects. The student sort of mishandled his turn and before I knew it, we de we departed normal flight. So we, we, we started an incipient spin. So that's when the airplane stalls, its wing stops flying, uh, the wing drops off and the airplane starts yawing and rolling into a spin, which is, you know, unless you recover is, is you know, catastrophic. We're really low, like we're about 500 feet at this stage and the ground is just rushing up towards me, you know, faster than I've ever seen in my life. And the drifter's pretty draggy little aeroplane um, and uh, I, I, you have to get the nose down quite a long way to recover from a, from a stall. I just grabbed the controls and I just threw it into the, uh, the spin recovery technique, which is shoving the stick forward and opposite rudder in. And I kind of just recovered the aeroplane uh, at about fence top height. I went to full power and we were so low that we actually hit the ground in the recovery. So fortunately it was an open paddock. We hit the ground, the fence is rushing up towards us and I thought, oh, this must be what it feels like to, to die, right? You know, we're about to die. And, uh, you know, thanks to God and the little Rotax on the back, we, we managed to bounce back up in the air. You know, the th little thing clawed, clawed uh, the air and managed to get enough lift to just get us over the fence. And then we, we uh, you know, somehow managed to stay in the air and, and eventually get enough flying speed to climb away. And I, I flew back. Uh, we flew back in silence to Gympie and... <laughs> And landed, and you know, and after I'd calmed down, the old instructor voice comes back and says, you know, what, so what do you think went wrong there, you know, <laughs> blogs? <laughs> but I don't think even that came out with much more than just a squeak. But I came back to, to Gympie, and anyway, the student went home, and I really, uh, you know, really uh, dwelt on that a lot. That night when I was filling in my, my logbook, uh, I filled in that flight and totaled up my hours, and unbelievably that flight where I, I probably came the close to, to dying that I ever have in an aircraft was the very flight that I ticked over my first thousand hours of flying Wow! and it was such a good lesson for me Mark because I realized that at that point I was just probably starting to get a bit good at what I was doing and a bit cocky and that's a really bad thing in aviation so it was a great reminder for me that no matter how much experience I've got your mind has to always be on the job. You can't let your guard down because those little things creep up on you so quickly. Because so. there are some milestones they do say where pilots do have to be aware and take care, like 100 hours is another one. Mm. I, I, I remember that when you're around the 100 hours that you might just sort of start to think that you're a little bit better than you actually are. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and that's why, uh, you know, aviation statistics are are often punctuated with with accidents from uh, you know the involving pilots who are very experienced uh, you know even even uh, old Barry Hempel um, so yeah a good reminder and I was lucky enough to get away with it you know to get the warning um, but a lot of people don't obviously but again uh, you know aviation has no uh, no ability to handle carelessness incapacity or neglect. Uh, you always do a good pre-flight before you go flying. Make a good decision. There's days when you can't, you shouldn't go flying. You know, you look at the weather and you think, you know what, today I'm not going to go. We make a self-assessment too. It's even, uh, we call it a human factor. So there'll be days when you're just not on your game. You know, you're just not feeling right or up to it. Your judgment's not there. They're the days not to go flying. Um, so in that sense, in, in, in many ways, it's fully controllable, provided you, you see what's going on, you make those decisions early, and you always keep your mind on the job. It sounds like you, though, have been uh, kissed by the aviation fairy 
that um, you've got away with some things that maybe other people haven't. Do you think that it's your training in the early days that have helped you out in those, you know, you had the split second reflexes? Possibly, I'd, I'd say my, my training certainly helps. Um, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved too. I, definitely in the cases where I've made a poor decision, it's a bit of, bit of luck involved. Uh, I remember taking off in a tiger moth at, at, um, at, at Archfield one day um, with a you know, passenger on board, a paying passenger, you know, unforgivable really. And the engine was running a bit rough when I ran it up. Not uncommon in a tiger moth, you know, it's a you know, 60 year old aeroplane. And they run a bit rough sometimes and often it will, it will clear, you know, uh, as you put the throttle on and, and accelerate for takeoff. And I had a fair bit of time in Tiger Moss, but I, I, I remember rolling out of the run, onto the runway and accelerating and the thing was still running rough, you know, and I should have given it away. I should have closed in the throttle and, and stopped the takeoff, but I didn't, you know, I thought oh, it'll clear, but it didn't clear. <laughs> so I scraped the thing into the air, you know, probably just missed the trees off the end of the of runway 2-8 at Archfield and I, you know, I staggered around the circuit. I think the tower must have hit the crash button, you know, but I managed to sort of, you know, uh, half fly around the circuit and, and, and land again and taxi in. And I survived that. That's what we call a partial engine failure. Quite, quite dangerous because it's insidious, you know, you don't know if it's stopped or, or it hasn't. Uh, but I managed to get away with it. Now, not long after that event, um, you know, a, uh, a, a, actually one of my former students who had, you know, gone on to buy his own aeroplane, I uh, had a similar event, took off from, from Boona again in a home-built aeroplane with a partial engine failure, didn't abort the takeoff, tried to stagger around the circuit and flew into rising ground, hit a power line and, uh, and crashed and he and his passenger were incinerated. So, wow. you know, I got away with it, um, he didn't. And so, you know, I don't know, yeah, sometimes I've been a bit lucky, I suppose. But you've had the passion all this time. Let's go back to the, the study and the uh, work that you went to become a commercial airline pilot. You were um, doing a couple of jobs as an instructor. Talk us through the work to get into the commercial aviation industry. Aviation has many ups and downs. At the moment, there's a big down because of the COVID-19. You can see the pictures of all the aeroplanes on the ground. Um, whilst we haven't seen anything quite this dramatic before, even in my career I've seen many ups and downs and uh, it was a down when I was getting into it. So uh, whilst you know, flying was going okay at the recreational level, it was very, very difficult to get into an airline. In fact, you know, the old joke was even Sun State, the, rec the, the regional airline at that stage, you had to wait for someone to die to get into it. <laughs> um, um, but uh, so it was very hard to get in. I was in GA or general aviation a long time before the airlines finally accepted me. So, which was, you know, in, in, in its own way, um, you know, a wonderful experience because I, I, um, I got to do so many different and varied things. But uh, yeah, it was a long time in GA, about 10 years before I managed to get into the airline or a bit more. Um, all the while trying to you know prepare myself for it so you know you do the study and and everything in aviation is sort of um cumulative so you know you'll pass one qualification you'll start studying for the next but i, I kind of had to do it while i was working so i would do a day's instructing at Boona, and i'd um you know initially i was working at night later on when i didn't have to work at night i'd be in the in the back in the donga studying my uh my, my manuals you know i wasn't um, you know, a, 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 a gifted academic when it came to the flying theory, so I always just struggled through with my theory exams. That's really surprising uh, that you would have blitzed it. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I, I probably, uh, now that I'm 
you know, uh, I've instructed for a while. I, I'm a very practical person, so I have to see meaning in something in order to learn it. So for me, just opening the textbook, the dry sort of material never really worked. Now that I've got some experience and I've seen everything that I've learned put into practice, it's much more meaningful for me. So I'm okay at it now and I think I'm better at explaining it as well. But yeah, in those days I, 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 was, I was hopeless. So my ATPL exam, the air transport pilot exams, which are the, the last exams before you get the final license, which is the air transport license, are very, very difficult in Australia. Probably, probably the most difficult in the world with maybe the possible exception of the UK. So they're really hard, you know, and, and I nearly didn't get through them. So. I think you had three years to get through seven exams or something and you know you got I think you might have got three chances at, at, at each exam well I, I passed the, the last and hardest exam uh, on the the last month of the last year of the last go at the exam that I could before they were all sort of null and void and I passed by one percent <laughs> pass mark was 70 I think I got 71 percent on uh, ATBL flight planning, which is a hard exam. So, uh, yeah, certainly no gifted uh, um, scholar <laughs> of aviation theory. Um, but I managed to get through all that, uh, God knows how. And uh, then eventually I was flying in um, Western Australia, flying a King Air a turboprop aeroplane for BHP when I finally got the call up for, for Virgin. And, um, yeah, that was my entry, my first entry into the airline world. The call up from Virgin, that must have been a, a, a pretty specky day. Yeah, well, it, it, it was. I mean, I, I'd never probably really had my heart set on the airline business, but as a pilot, you just keep going, you know, you keep going as far as you could, and I suppose it would just seem natural that that's what you'd do. So, well, I probably didn't have a burning ambition to be an airline pilot like some other pilots do, but I was still, you know, still chuffed to get there. And so you just wanted to fly? Yeah, and obviously, you know, big aeroplane, fast aeroplane jets, you know, who, who doesn't want to do that, right? <laughs> I didn't particularly want to take them, you know, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne with a travelling public and a hat on my head, mm. but uh, I just wanted to fly the aeroplanes. In fact, if the airline had have just given me the aircraft to go flying at, you know, in ten, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, go and take the jet for a fly pole, I would have loved it, you know. <laughs> There's some other more, more undesirable things about the airline business, but I remember when I, when I first, I finally got the job at Virgin after trying for so long, uh, one of the first people I rang up was Barry Hempel, and I got on the phone and said, oh, Barry, you know, I've, I've, I've finally made it, I've got into Virgin, and you know what his answer to me was? Oh, what about aviation? <laughs> like, he just thought, well, you're leaving, you're leaving us, you know, you're leaving real flying to go to the airlines, and in a sense, you know, I, I was, but... Um you know, it was a start of a you know new profession, new adventure, I suppose. How much control on these big aircrafts? How much real flying are you doing? Um, look, the, the automation is is incredible. The, the the systems are incredible, but you still need humans, at least at the moment. Um, it's funny though how it works. I mean, these days the simulation is so good that you do all of your type rating training in a simulator. So when I when I did my seven three seven. Uh, type rating. It was all in the simulator. I never flew the aeroplane um, in training. So my first ever landing in a real 737, this might horrify some people, <laughs> was on a red-eye flight back from Perth to Brisbane and with 180 people in the back. And this is my first ever go at landing the thing. You've got a training captain sitting beside you, you know, um, but uh, there I was. And, uh, you know, I can remember just being absolutely overwhelmed by the experience. Again, you know, <laughs> so many times in aviation. But anyway, I don't even know how I got it on the ground, but I managed to get it on and, you know, that was another little milestone done. How did your mother feel when she'd given you the $1,000 to 
continue your aviation studies and career. How did she feel when you finally got the big call up? Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm sure they've, they've always been, my parents have always been pleased for me, whatever I've, I've done, but their expectations have always been very reasonable for me as well. So I think they've always been proud of what I've done regardless uh, of what it's been and they would have been just as happy if I had of you know opened a shop or had a paper paper route or been a garbage collector as an airline pilot, so I'm fortunate in that regard. Okay, now talking about uh, the airlines, you moved to uh, to Virgin. Now, uh, not a lot of people would know about seniority and how that uh, operates. Could you share that? How the seniority in an airline? So you really have to stay with the one airline. Yeah, look, that's a, that's a really interesting question, and it's an interesting topic of discussion because uh, in Australia and, and uh, I, I guess for legacy carriers in most of the parts of the world, uh, the airline runs on a seniority system which means that you start at the bottom, at the bottom rank and the time you are uh, in the airline determines you know, your, your position in the hierarchy and that will determine you know, when, you, when you come up for a command. Yeah, obviously you've still got to get through your command training and be found to be acceptable um, but it's seniority based more than merit based in many ways uh, but it also determines things like you know who gets the best holidays who gets the best money you know all that sort of stuff um, the problem with the aviation business or at least the, the legacy aviation uh, airlines are that if you leave the company all the seniority is gone so you could be at the top of your game in an airline as a senior check captain, leave, uh, re resign, and you'd have to start at the bottom again with the next airline, which is nuts, right? There's, there's very few professions that I, th uh, that I think in the world that would be like that. Um, the proponents of, um, of the seniority say, well, it's the only fair system, you know, because it cuts out nepotism and things like that. So when your turn comes, well, you get the, you get the prize. But... Um, of course, the opponents of it say, well, it, it, it stifles um, um, uh, people that might be a cut above the rest, you know, and, and uh, doesn't allow for, uh, you know, progressing people on merit rather than, you know, an arbitrary system. So, look, the, the jury's out. It, it, it's not always that way. Some airlines work on a, on a merit system. But, uh, you know, in Australia, at least, we're, we're stuck with the seniority system. Now, one of the things that it does for pilots is it tends to, it locks you into a company. And that can be good if you enjoy it there, if you like it. But often as not, people get sick of it, you know. Everyone has a use-by date with their enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, if you've been in the same company for, for 10 or 20 years uh, and you don't want to be there, and you have, but you have to, because that's the only place you can get that sort of money, uh, and rank, it's, it's, it's unbearable for people. So that's reflected in the crew room where, you know, pilots, you go in there and pilots whinge and bitch and moan about the company and, you know, well that's, that's sort of a pilot thing anyway, right? There's an old joke that says, how do you tell a pilot? You know, it's, oh, when the, when the, uh, when the engine stopped, the whining keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we like to whine and whinge. I think it's part of the personality type, but guys do get s stuck in that sort of rut there and they're unable to leave and do other things. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I got to the stage in Virgin where I was I was there for 12 years and I used to always try and enjoy my work, you know, I'd go to work and try and have a good time and, you know, have a happy cockpit and everything. And I used to look at these guys in the crew room who were bitter and twisted and, and whining and I, and I used to think, well, you know, if I'm ever like that, I'll, I'll leave, you know. I, I won't stay and be unhappy. And uh, so anyway, one day I was like that <laughs> and so I had to go. 
but I decided to uh, to leave and go off to another airline, and uh, that was pretty tough actually because, you know, it's like um, the thing you're familiar with and the thing you know, and it's very uncomfortable to leave that and to um, being the senior and then suddenly being the junior. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was fortunate enough that the airline I went to was uh, accepting direct entry captain, so I didn't have to change my rank. But uh, even so, um, leaving Virgin was, was uh, you know, it was a difficult experience. I went through a range of human emotions with it. But I'm so glad that I did it because I realised that you don't have to stay in that system. You know, you can live on your wits in aviation. You might not get to live where you want to live or, f- or fly with the, the, you know, the airline of your choice, but you can have a whole career outside of the seniority system. And so I was able to do that and it was a real, you know, revelation to me. And the next job I had was, was great fun too. And, and, and so it's been after that. So you moved to NRU at that mm. stage. What happened then? Well, the funny thing about the, the, the Nauru job was I was, uh, I was actually looking in the, um, uh, the, I was putting an ad into the job uh, papers for an instructor at the flying school. And while I was in there, I saw oh, Nauru Airlines uh, looking for direct entry captains. And I thought, oh, that sounds a bit interesting. I'd seen the, the beautiful, old, but beautiful blue uh, 737s over on the other side of the apron at, at uh, Brisbane. I was intrigued about it. And... It just sounded so exotic, you know, flying these old aeroplanes out across the Pacific um, to, uh, you know, far-flung places and small islands. It sounded, you know, like an adventure. So I just, probably without even thinking, I, I rang I rang the airline and they put me straight through to the chief pilot, which is unheard of in a you know, large airline like uh, Virgin or Qantas. And I got talking to the, uh, the, the chief pilot, Ross Gibson, there, and we immediately struck it off. And he said, well, you better come in for a cup of coffee. So I came in for a cup of coffee and before I knew it, I was being measured up for a uniform and, you know, issued, issued the manuals and things. And I thought, oh, geez, I, I better resign from Virgin <laughs> before they catch on. So um, I asked, actually went, went initially to Virgin and, and asked for leave without pay, but they didn't, they didn't want to give it to me because they thought, you know, they thought the floodgates would open if they sort of allowed that. So I said, well, you know what, I'll just go. And I, I resigned and really never looked back. So Nauru Airlines was fabulous. A small company, just we had five... Um, uh, 737 uh, 300s, which are older aircraft, a bit more stick and rudder to fly, you know, not quite as uh, fancy as the new ones Virgin and Qantas have. Um, so that appealed to me. And uh, man, the places we went to. So, you know, we used to fly a big, big flight to Nauru, you know, it's nearly five hours out to Nauru. But if you can imagine, that's right on the edge of the range of a 737 with, um, with the fuel the, uh, capacity. And you fly for five hours over the Pacific, but you see nothing but ocean. And then you arrive at a tiny little speck, you know, which is the, Nauru is the, uh, the tip of, a, of an undersea volcano. And it's, um, you know, you can walk around it in, in half a day. It's got a <laughs> circumference of it at 20 kilometres. Uh, it's not much higher than a, than a palm tree. And the airstrip, you know, pretty well goes right across the island. So. You, you know, then you land on this airstrip and uh, you're in a whole other world, you know, it's really wonderful. But, um, you know, some big, big uh, technical challenges there too because you're right on the edge of the range and there's really nowhere to, nowhere to go if you, if you get there and the weather's bad. You had just enough fuel to get to the next island, but you could never be sure that the weather was okay there as well. So it's quite technically challenging. And because the lack of support out in the islands, you're really kind of on your own. And, and so that really appealed to me as well. So, and Ross Gibson, the chief pilot, said to me when we had our coffee, he said, you know, Paul, when you, when you put the wheels up in Brisbane, you're on your own. 
And I went, yeah, great. That's just the way I like it. So in the mainstream airlines, it, it is quite, um, you know, it, it obviously has, has its moments when you have to sort of use your, use your brain and work, work hard. But it's very uh, regimented, you know. It's Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. It's rostered, it's controlled, and everything happens when it should happen. But out there, you know, it was just like the Wild West out in the Pacific. And the captain's it, you know. I was in charge of the crew and the aircraft and its disposition and where I went and what I did. And and, uh, so I really enjoyed that part of the job. But the places we went to were spectacular as well. So Nauru and, you know, Kiribati uh, up into... uh, into uh, the Marshall Islands, you know, uh, to Majuro, quite close to Bikini Atoll, where the uh, American nuclear testing was. I think the French let a few off there as well. Yeah, look, it, you know, it's a fascinating part of the world, but uh, we did, never went to uh, Bikini Atoll, but, um, you know, the Marshallese all, of course, remember the nuclear nuclear testing. Um, went to a place called uh, Ponape in, in Micronesia, which is you know, like something out of Jurassic Park with these amazing, you know, jungle-clad mountains going into the sea and, you know, quite sort of, um, you know, backward communities, I suppose, but wonderful people and wonderful experiences. So, yeah, look, really good fun. And we, we had a freighter as well, so we had we did a bit of uh, freight and uh, not only um, uh, did we do the, the, the RPT flying around the islands, but we did a lot of charter as well. So at that point, we were doing a lot of the charter for the Department of Immigration taking the, uh, you know, detainees to the various detention centres. So we used to go to Manus Island in New Guinea and out to Nauru and over the Christmas Island in the west. But the freighter did some pretty amazing things too. I remember one day um, Ross rang up and said, oh, we've got a job for you, Paul. You, you know, you have to get to the freighter in Brisbane, a special cargo. So uh, I rock up to the freighter in Brisbane and it's parked out on a remote stand, like nowhere near the hangars or the terminal or anything. And it's got... Uh, it's got all these airport sort of vehicles with flashing lights around it and everything like what's going on here and turns out our cargo was 14 ton of dynamite <laughs> and uh yeah, sorry gunpowder gunpowder black gunpowder so we had got a special permit from casa we just kind of do the jobs that no one else would do right so we had um yeah 14 ton of gunpowder in the freighter loaded in boxes and my job was to take it to surabaya in indonesia now where do you get that sort of job right so uh, we took off in this thing. We had a special permit from CASA to be able to fly it. I had to avoid all build-up areas. I had to sort of take off and make a, a steep turn to avoid flying over the CBD of Brisbane. And <laughs> we flew to Alice Springs, you know, where they, they were under pains to tell us that, you, you know, you got to, we don't really want you here. You know, get down and refuel as quick as you can and just get out of here because we don't want that stuff near us. So I landed in Alice Springs, refueled and promptly broke down, <laughs> which was not an unregular, irregular thing in, in the Rural Airlines. But... Um, Anyway, I eventually got, got to uh, Surabaya in Indonesia and gently landed the aeroplane, you know, <laughs> making sure we didn't sort of, you know, upset the cargo unnecessarily. <laughs> Opened the cargo door and I actually walked away from the aeroplane. I just couldn't watch the unloading because uh, it was, was going up to the, um, to the Indonesian military of all places. And so these guys got onto the back of the aeroplane. They started grabbing these boxes of, of uh, gunpowder and just chucking them out the aeroplane to their what? mates who would catch them down the bottom. Typical baggage handlers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I couldn't watch that happen. But, you know, we did, yeah, that sort of thing. I went, I did charters to, uh, you know, Vietnam and all over the place. So it was a really terrific experience. Why did you leave there? Um, I left there because uh, I was really sort of enticed to go to China. Um, I didn't want to keep doing the airline flying forever. I'm running the flying school at the same time and I was pretty pretty thinly stretched between the two jobs always and never doing either of them as best as well as I probably could. 
so I always kind of wanted to get back to the flying school um, and, and do GA flying. That's that's what I really wanted to do. But, you know, uh, I had kids at private school and I needed to try and, you know, secure my finances a little bit. So at that stage, uh, some of the Chinese airlines were offering incredible contracts for Australian pilots. So, um, you know, a three-year contract in China was financially like 10 years over here. So. I thought, well, I've still got youth on my side. I, I, it's probably, you know, I could, I could do it. The work's there now. Let's have a go. You know, it seemed like another adventure to me as well. So I went to uh, to to China, and uh, yeah, that was a start of a whole new sort of adventure as well. What was the training like there? The the whole, it was a real culture shock actually. Becoming a pilot in China, I'd had you know a lot of experience um, already, but uh, it was almost like starting again. They've got some big cultural differences, but um, uh, yeah, their training was really tough. So we had to do uh, the Chinese, you know, ATP uh, theory again. We had to do all their, you know, company induction stuff. And then we had to do the simulator training and then their line training. And their simulator training is unbelievably difficult. So, you know, I'd been through a lot of sims in Australia and nobody likes, no airline pilot likes going in the simulator. They're fun things for people that aren't pilots, but pilots cringe when they, they have to go in a sim because... Yeah, why is that? Uh, because in, whilst in the, in the real aeroplane, nothing ever goes wrong, in the simulator, nothing ever goes right. So the, the check captain sits behind you in a big chair like Captain Kirk, and his job is to just torment you for the, you know, four hours that you're in there, and it's engine failures and fires and difficult scenarios, and you know that's how we re re refresh our skills every six months as as pilots. But the Chinese system was just absolutely over the top you know it was m like multiple complex failures one on the top of the other on top of the other and really designed to see if you cracked i suppose um so yeah that was that Did was you? certainly difficult uh no i managed to sort of scrape my way through the the simulator training um uh for reasons i can't explain but uh, <laughs> I, I managed to bluff my way through we were assigned chinese first officers who were pretty low time pilots uh, for the simulator, and uh, but they were terrific. You know, they were really good help. They they knew the aeroplane backwards. They lacked experience, but they knew their stuff and they knew the numbers. So they were great, great support for you going through that process. But um, yeah, I, look, even though it was difficult, I actually found it quite invigorating because I saw so many different things that I'd never seen in Australia. So many different failures and complex things. So by the end of the process, whilst um, whilst unpleasant, I felt like I could handle anything in the aeroplane. And this is after having flown the airlines for, for quite a number of years. I've never felt trained as, as well as I did when I finished my training in, in China. So I was quite impressed with that. And they put a lot of emphasis into, into training and development as well. So did that surprise you that they it, put yeah, so it much? Did. It really did. And, and as an instructor, it, um, it, it, it you know, really thrilled me, I suppose. So we'd have these horrendous, difficult sims, but they'd also give you training sims. So you'd have four or five training sims before one of these diabolical check flights. And that was great, you know, that's something that we just don't quite see in the West because, you know, time is money and they give you the minimum usually that, that's, that's required. Now, got, you know, the equivalent standard probably is produced at the end, but I was really impressed with the, um, the, the emphasis they put on training in China, if not the, the checks. <laughs> But uh, the, 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 the other thing that impressed me in China was the st scale of the avia aviation infrastructure. So their airports and their airways are just something to behold. So, you know, over here, I don't know how long it's taken us to get the second runway, you know, underway in Sydney, but 
in the same amount of time in China. They probably built 100 airports. And these are big airports, you know, maybe with three or four big 4,000 metre runways, you know, four ILS instrument landing system approaches, terminals like, you know, something from outer space, glass sort of, you know, and stainless. Sort of Chang'e standard. Yeah, really, really impressive. So they had the stuff, you know, and there's more aeroplanes flying over there than I've ever seen in my life. Wow, so you, you just don't think about China as... No, you really don't. And, and we, we probably in the West, and particularly in Australia, we, we exist in a bit of a bubble. And we, we often think we're sort of God's gift to aviation and we know all about it. But I tell you what, you know, in terms of infrastructure and the scale of the operation, they, they leave us for dead over there. They, things also worked very well. So, you know, in Australia, airline pilots' frustration is, you know, often, you know, you're waiting around, where, you know, you're on the phone, where are the passengers, where's the refueler, you know, the, the system doesn't always work for you, but over there it was like clockwork. So we had, um, you know, the, you'd get picked up from the, the, the crew hotel in the morning, you'd get taken to the stairs of the aeroplane, you'd walk up straight into the cockpit, close the door, I'd never see the passengers, passengers would come in, I'd go flying, come out, you know, passengers would go, the, everything was where it needed to be at the right time. The refueler was always there. The aeroplane was always immaculately presented, well maintained. You know, the, the crew were looked after. So it was incredible. So, you know, it was, it was a case of you were expected to perform. You had to perform or they'd fail you summarily. You know, it was pretty brutal. But if you did perform, they looked after you really, really well. And that, that was professionally very rewarding. Yeah. What sort of stuff did you see in China? Because not a lot of people get over there, and also you'd see it from a fairly unique perspective. What sort of things that stood out to you from flying around China? Yeah, well, the, it's a really strange environment, especially as a Westerner, because uh, whilst aviation is the English, sorry, English is the aviation language, and everywhere else in the world they speak English, in, in China they speak Chinese on the radio. Now they'll speak English to me because on my flight plan it says English, cap uh, English speaking captain. But everything else is happening in Chinese. So when you're flying around, you're not only listening to the radio calls to your aircraft, but you're listening to the whole environment around you to sort of get a bit of an idea of what's going on, you know, the, the situational uh, the awareness, the, the situational awareness, the lay of the land. So you haven't got that. So it's kind of like flying in a little bubble, you know. Um, you've got your FO, who's Chinese and can translate, but, you know, they're only helpful to a point. So that was a bit unusual. Um, Scenery-wise, yeah, really, really interesting. But, but of course, with the uh, the pollution over there, and the the, uh, it's not just pollution. Actually, they've got some topographical um, factors there that make the sky almost always hazy, and often low cloud and poor visibility. So often you wouldn't see the ground. So you'd take off, you'd lift off straight into the soup, and you wouldn't, you'd bust up above it. And so you'd be flying around above it, but then you wouldn't see the ground until you're, you know, 200 feet on, on final approach. But the days you could see the ground, I saw some amazing things. So I've flown, you know, right up to, uh, right past the, the North Korean border. I look out my window and there's, there's North Korea and right up to uh, um, like uh, Changchun up in the north of China where it was minus 40 degrees outside and, you know, snow and ice on the runway. I've never had to deal with that sort of thing before. So that was amazing. I've been up into the, you know, uh, the west of China, like um, to places like Chongqing, where I can remember, you know, busting out of the cloud on final approach, and uh, I'd never been there before. And I looked out my window, and I mean, this is a, this is well in in the centre of China. It's like being in Alice Springs, right, in the Flinders Ranges. It's it's there's mountains all around, and I looked out the window, and there's a ship. There's a ship there, like a container ship. And I thought, that's like seeing a ship in Alice Springs, right, up in the mountains. And it's, a, it's in the Yangtze River, and, and these things navigate all the way up the Yangtze from, from Shanghai. Wow. Uh, yeah, some absolutely incredible 
things. Um, and aeroplanes everywhere. So, right. you know, constantly aeroplanes above you, below you, all around. And, and often that really constrains your freedom of maneuver if there's a, a, any weather or anything. Can't go left, can't go right, can't go up, can't go down. You know, it's quite, can be quite tricky. Um, but yeah, we used to do that and, uh, you know, fly uh, a bit of international flying as well. So one of the lovely flights we used to do was uh, go from Sharman, where I was based, down to Bangkok. And that flight would take you, you know, right past uh, Bangkok, uh, sorry, but right past uh, uh, Hong Kong and uh, Guangzhou and that huge, big, you know, megalopolis that's around that, that bottom part of China. Then we'd go over Hainan Island and then down the spine of Vietnam and, you know, you know see the colours of the, of the scenery in Vietnam um, that you associate with, with, you know, all those pictures of the war and everything. And then da down into Bangkok, you know, absolutely wonderful little things like that up to Japan and Korea. So, yeah, pretty amazing experience all around. But uh, unfortunately, it was, uh, was, it was cut a bit short by the... COVID crisis, so. So what happened? Well, uh, so I was there, it basically it took almost 12 months to get through all the training hurdles and the system um, to get checked to line. Um, but I'd established myself there, had a little flat, and I'd finished my training, finally got through all the hurdles. I was checked to line for only two weeks as a full captain over there, and then the, uh, the airline stood us all down because of the, the COVID. So um, I had to, uh, had to come home, uh, having kind of had the, um, done the hard yards, but not, not achieving that financial reward <laughs> that I had, had, a go had gone up there for in the first place. Um, but I must say that the airline uh, was, was very commendable the way they dealt with it all. They, um, you know, the circumstances were completely outside of their control. And, you know, they looked after us as best they could. Um, you know, until the point that it became sort of untenable. So I've still got a Chinese licence and, uh, you know, I guess the, the door would still be open to going back up there if I can sort of get through the medical um, and those sim checks again. Um, but, you know, who knows what will happen in the meantime. What's the future of aviation then because of COVID? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a very interesting one, Mark, and one that I guess uh, nobody really can guess at the moment. Uh, we've never seen anything like this with the aeroplane. I mean, we've had SARS and 9-11 and other big, big setbacks before. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, to use a far too often use, uh, you know, used term, un completely unprecedented at the moment. And I fear that, you know, even if, if aviation is able to recover, even if the industry, if someone can click their fingers and say, right, I, you know, you can jump into aeroplanes and go flying again. I think the, the problem with this current crisis is it, it uh, may have, um, you know, it's going to change people's travel, travel habits uh, quite significantly. So we've not only got to get the, the aeroplanes flying again, we've got to get people flying again. And, and that's going to take some time. I, I don't really know how it's going to play out. I can only be hopeful that it, that it will uh, get back to the way it was. Uh, this is my, you know, my beloved industry. And I, I, the thing that gives me some confidence in that Mark is the fact that I think there's still that um, unerring instinct in people to to travel and move and explore. You know, at least I hope that that's still there in people. Well, let's just hope. But uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to spend some time over the bonnet, Captain Paul McEwen. Thanks for joining us, Captain Mark Peters. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, 
Even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrimark Medical. Contact Merrimark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big, and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton, and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 22 and the earth will move for you.